So this morning, I want to explore one of the great themes of um, really of human life, maybe of life in general, of uh, certainly of spirituality, and that's the nature of the self and the mysteries of our sense of self how that can sometimes be quite limited and how it can sometimes be quite large and how sometimes it can be non-existent. So in so many traditions, the question is asked, what is the self? Who is the self? What is our true self? What is our false self? What is our limited self? What's the ego? What does it mean to go beyond ego? All these words uh, point to a kind of inquiry. And my hope uh, this week, and I'm wanting to continue this in the next weeks, is to invite a kind of inquiry and kind of... uh, Uh, deep interest in looking in your own experience, both in meditation and in the flow of everyday life, to look further into this question. All of us have investigated in various ways the nature of the self. And it's a major theme in meditation practice, of course. But I want to uh, arouse a certain level of uh, passion and energy and maybe also confusion. (laughs) Some waves of appreciation for the possibility of confusion were were noted. (laughs) Uh, Because I think we need a certain amount of... um, being a little unsettled to actually look into the question of the nature of the self. So I will hope to provide that some. You can take on your level of, of uncertainty, but I, I will do that also for myself. Most of you know that in the Buddhist teaching, in the original teachings of the Buddha, One of the core teachings is the teaching of anatta, translated usually as not-self, sometimes as no-self, and taken to be one of the areas of core insight. When we talk about the practice of vipassana, which we translate as insight meditation, the particular areas that traditionally were the areas of insight are those of insight into impermanence, insight into the nature and roots of suffering, and insight into anatta or not-self. So it's a core area to really explore who is the self, what is this self, what is not-self, and it's definitely one of the most confusing teachings when I'm teaching and someone asks a question about self or what is not self or starts to develop a question about it, I think I, I brace myself a little bit. <laughs> you know? And it's, it can be an area of a lot of conceptual confusion and uh, existential confusion <coughs> as well. You know, and even anguish at times. I heard a story a few years ago from one of my students about a young man who was 20 years old who went on his first retreat and the teacher on that retreat said, there is no self. And this young man was very troubled by that. No one had told him that earlier in his life. And he actually was very anguished He dropped out of college and was extremely angry about there being no self. (coughs) 
So you can see there's anguish, but uh, also confusion. But it was for this person, it was not just a conceptual matter. And I think that's we can sometimes feel. I know that's been sometimes true for me to really um, go into this area, and sometimes it's it's troubling or confusing or upsetting to who I thought I was. So a very confusing area. You know, we can ask, isn't the, um, isn't the fact of a self obvious? Sometimes we take it as the most obvious starting point for experience, that there's a self, that there's an I, you know. Um, the French philosopher Descartes made the standpoint of the I, the starting point for all of modern philosophy, when he said, uh, I think, therefore I am. So there are two references to I, I think and I am. A later, some later uh, Buddhist uh, commentators said, he probably should have said, um, there is thinking, Part of the thinking is that I exist. There's <laughs> a reformulation of Descartes, but but it's um, it's clearly you know it's clearly something that we take for granted. There there are a lot of uh, good kind of Jewish Buddhist jokes about this. One of, one of them goes, "If there's no self, whose arthritis is this?" <laughs> If there's no self, uh, we, can I drive away in your car? <laughs> you know, so we, we can get confused about it. It comes up against what are the common sense realities. And, you know, confusing in all sorts of ways. The language is very different. You know, we have in uh, the teachings of the Buddha, there's talk about not-self. In other traditions, there's talk about true-self. Sometimes you have a small self with a um, small s, and then other people say the true self is self with a capital S. So you have that as like the psychology of Carl Jung. What one is really aiming for is the self with a capital S. You know? And uh, it's even very confusing, even in Buddhists who have this tradition of talking about not self. You have also in the text the, uh, often the word used for those who are most advanced spiritually is uh, maha-atta. It's the same word that is used for Gandhi, mahatma. It means great self. So it's like the one who has no self or not, who realizes not self is a great self. So, you know, Horde, there's also uh, language about Buddha nature. You know, our deep nature uh, inside. It does, doesn't that sound like a deep self? You know, or, or what's going on? Or we do these practices that seem to be based on, on a sense of self. We do, you know, if we are, you know, we ask ourselves to meditate, to develop generosity, to develop concentration. So who's doing that? Who's doing that if not the self, right? We, in metta practice, we develop metta for ourselves and for others. So what's this teaching about not-self? What's going on? Isn't, you know, who, who are we? In some Buddhist traditions, one is asked to actually look for the self. Where is it? Is it your thought? Is it your body? Is it your emotion? And it's also, you know, it's, it's very confusing the way that we use language in English and in the way that we sometimes use terms that come from Western psychology uh, in talking about these issues of self. We use the word ego, for example, and sometimes we use language as if the problem is the ego. Isn't the ego the self? And the ego seems to be bad or egotistical, right? And a lot of people use that language. Meditation gets us beyond the ego. Does this mean beyond the self? Are you, are we feeling any confusion yet? <laughs> so it, it's, you know, and then people use the words in all sorts of different ways. 
Some people use the word ego as something negative. A lot of Western psychologists use it as something positive about the sort of the ability to bring together all the parts of experience. That's how Freud used it. You know, he used ego in a kind of neutral way. And he actually didn't even use the word ego. It's a bad translation from the German. The word in German was really the word for I. And it was translated as ego, which is Latin, which was a bad translation. Because you have all this, all this going on. Uh, you know, and then we have a lot of uh, a lot of different confusion. We you know we see people who use teachings about not self as a reason not to deal with their own issues. Well, if there's no self, why should I get a job? You know, or why should I deal with these psychological issues? Because it's all in passing. It's all my ego. And that sometimes happens. Maybe that's been there for you. That we have a sense of transcending the self or transcending the ego, and people sometimes don't deal with what's actually there in the, in the name of transcending the self. So you can see all these different dimensions of confusion, conceptual, linguistic, practical, you know, <coughs> and so forth. And then, if that wasn't enough, when we actually read the text, we see that the deeper teachings about self and not-self are often expressed paradoxically. And so you have passages where the Buddha, who's been teaching not-self, is asked by a questioner, is there a self? And he doesn't answer. And then he asks, well, then is there no self? And he doesn't answer. And the questioner goes off somewhat grumpy. <laughs> and the Buddha is then asked by his attendant, Ananda, why didn't you give a straight answer? And he said, if I would have said self, he would have fallen into one extreme. If I would have said no self, he would have fallen into another extreme. And I did not wish him to fall into further confusion. So, what does that say? Or you have um, you have the Thai forest teacher Achan Cha, teacher of Jack Cornfield and others. He once said, "The teachings about no self are not true. <laughs> the teachings about self are also not true." <laughs> All selves who feel confident at this moment, raise your hand. <laughs> so you see, I think this kind of unsettling quality can be helpful because we want to really, in a sense, look freshly. That's what's being invited here, to look freshly at what's there. And another statement uh, from the Tibetan teacher Kala Rinpoche, also in the language of paradox, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So we're everything, nothing. We're, we're not self. We're self. You know, what's going on? Very similar statement from the Hindu teacher, Sri Nisargadatta, which some of you know says, when I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns. So inspiring statement, but what is that saying about all this? It's expressed as paradox. And I'll, one more expression of paradox from the second century, Nargajana, the great Buddhist philosopher. You are not the same as... And you are also not different from the conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of all Buddhas in the world, that you are neither the same nor different from the conditions of your life. I'm glad that that clarified things. <laughs> so we have that language of paradox. We have a lot of conceptual confusion. And as I said, this is not just 
conceptual or linguistic, we can sometimes, when we look into this, we can really be knocked off center and be, be um, in some degree of anguish. You know, I've experienced that, and maybe many of us have, when some sense of who we thought we are gets uh, challenged by events or by sometimes by a relationship or by something that, that's happened. How many can relate to that? Some, some, some earlier sense of self getting shaken. So what I want to do in these uh, weeks is to explore this and do it in a few different ways. I was thinking of um, working with a few reference points and particularly uh, exploring probably next time the main forms of self. But let me mention the, uh, these reference points because this is how I want to uh, approach these themes. What I want to do is give some ways of understanding self and not self and also each week give practices to do that week that are very ordinary practices that we can do in our everyday lives to bring this inquiry uh, maybe into some uh, focus in our lives, if you wish, if, if you feel, feel this call. So I want to I have five reference points in looking at questions of self and not self and bring, bring these out in different ways. One of them is the reference point of the core teachings of the Buddha. What does the teaching of not-self mean? You know, and you know that there is, some, of we, some of us can remember that there is a teaching of looking at experience without talking about self, of really looking, and this is a meditative experience as well, of uh, being with experience and just noting what we actually notice moment to moment. And do we notice self? We can have a thought of self, we can have self-image, but do we actually find self as something in experience? And interestingly, this was echoed many, many centuries later by similar inquiries that took place among some of the British philosophers. Some of you probably studied David Hume in college. Philosophy 101. <coughs> and David Hume said, when I look carefully, I find no self. Self is a construction. You know? I don't find a self, I just find you know, this sensation, that sensation, this thought, that thought. And I don't actually find a self in experience. The Buddha said something quite similar and said we can describe experience without bringing in the concept of self. So I want to go back to those uh, core teachings about what is this teaching of the not, of not self? How do we understand it? Uh, what does it really point to? A second reference point is uh, modern psychology and psychotherapy, because what I find particularly helpful are a few things that are uh, pointed to. There's some different ways of understanding self. But particularly what I'm interested in that I find really useful is that there are two kinds of experiences pointed to. One is the kind of experiences where the self gets very thick, where we feel stuck in self, particularly when there are some developmental issues. Maybe there's a wound from the past. Because one of the ways that we have a very strong sense of self is around our wounds or around our difficulties in our lives, you know, that if there was some developmental issue that didn't go quite right, there will be a wound there, some hurt, and that can be really where uh, a sense of self gets very strong. You know, let's say that I was uh, 10 years old and my parents divorced, and I had a strong sense of abandonment, and that those issues are still there. And now I'm in a relationship, and my partner wants to go away for the weekend. And something arises in me, some anxiety, some fear, and it's almost like I, I can't deal with that. 
right, in, in a sort of, in, a, in certain situations. And we can see how that's connected with a wound, with something unresolved. And Western psychology is particularly helpful for pointing out the ways that we can get stuck in certain senses of self. You know, we sometimes call these neuroses. <laughs> you know, or, but I think for me that's very helpful in combination with the meditative psychology because we can really point out in ways that weren't pointed out in the ancient teachings, ways that we have this thick sense of self or we get stuck or that they're problems. And some of Western psychology, particularly uh, transpersonal psychology, also points to ways that we go beyond the ordinary self in all sorts of ways. So for me, that reference point of psychology is helpful for, under, for unpacking what self is. Another reference point that's, that's interesting for me is an understanding of how our self, how our sense of self is socially constructed. How we have a different sense of self than the Eskimos have. Or that existed 3,000 years ago. Or that exists maybe in um, 200 years ago. That we have, a, we, we have interesting senses of self that in our culture we have a pretty highly developed sense of self. You know, we have a sense of being an individual in a, in a way that hasn't existed on a mass level probably until the last century or two. You know, that we have it very different. And I'm very, maybe you are very aware of that when you go to other cultures. You know, I was, uh, in, in many ways, this sense of the, we might call it of an individualist culture, where it's like the individual is everything, right? It's often that way in our culture that we sometimes think that the individual sense of self is the primary reality, which is not what you had in other cultures, where it was the group or the community. And we have that very strongly in this culture. I mean, there are other aspects as well, but a, we often see that expressed in ideas like, that's my truth, or that's true for me, as if that's the major sense of what truth is. That's true for me, or there's a line from the philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, subjectivity is the truth. Objectivity is false. What's true is my basic, authentic self. That's the core of life. Does that sound familiar? It's kind of like a therapeutic ideal, right? Mm -hmm. Therapeutic culture. My wishes, my desires, my authentic self is the core of reality. We can see how that's, in many ways, a basis for our society. Just think of advertising. Who does advertising appeal to? It appeals to that individual self where one's desires and wishes are the major aspect of life, right? And then I saw that sometimes. I think we're bringing we or the world is expanding so that that view of things is increasingly the view of self in the whole world. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's coming with globalization to take over the whole world. And I, and I don't want to say it's, in, it's simply negative. I'm, I'm not saying that. It's complex. But I saw that in a story I probably have told before. Uh, once when I was at a, a conference of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists in Thailand, the organizers, who, who were all Thai, they had spent some time in America, a few of them. And they, st they said, we'll bring in to our gathering, which was mostly of Asian people, and a lot of them were very simple people, maybe peasant background, monks and so forth, and nuns. And they had been maybe to California. I know some of them had been to California. We'll use California workshop techniques with our gathering this time. And so at the end of the conference, they asked everyone who was there to make a comment, one thing they liked and one thing they didn't like which was kind of unheard of in that culture. And you could see the first people who were, did it were extremely shy because it's not something one typically did. And people started talking hesitantly about what they liked, their wishes and so forth. And it was mostly about the food. <laughs> <laughs> and you could see them start talking. And then after a few minutes, it was, it was as if the taboo 
was gone. And they got into it so much with such passion. I really liked how he did this, and I also didn't like the vegetarian food. <laughs> I would have preferred meat, <laughs> you know. And they, and they got into it, one person after another. And I had the feeling, oh my God, we are bringing individualist Western culture into Thai culture. You know, so I think it's happening in the world. So that's a third reference point. How much is our sense of self constructed? A historical construction? Because if we're interested in going beyond our conditioning and seeing our conditioning, we need to know that. It's something often that Asian teachers don't really know necessarily. It's been very interesting for me, and I think it's very important for if we're bringing together, as it were, Buddhist practices, we need to know our own psyches. How, what are, how are our minds constructed if we want to work with it? So that's the third reference point, the, the nature of our construction. Another reference point is our sense of ordinary experience. What's our experience of self? What's our experience of not-self? And I think that there are actually very ordinary experiences in which we lose a sense of self. And I'm going to point in a way, to, in a simple way, to, to uh, talk, maybe I'll do this in a few moments, to say that there are some, with all the confusion about self and not-self, I think there's some simple ways of talking about it. And one of the ways is, one of the ways I want to bring that out is to, is to refer to ordinary everyday experience as also a main way, a main place to look to understand self and not self. I'll say a little more about that in a moment. And then the uh, fifth reference point is the particular challenges of doing Buddhist-inspired practice in our culture. What comes up? What sorts of issues come up? I think there are certain characteristic uh, questions that we may have. Uh, such as, my mind is incredibly active. I have a Western mind. How can I work with meditation with this? What do I need further tools or whatever, whatever it might be? So those are the five reference points. Traditional teachings, particularly uh, from the Buddha. Secondly, psychological perspectives. Thirdly, uh, perspectives of the social construction of ourself. Fourthly, our ordinary experience. And fifthly, our experience as Western meditators. Okay? So I'm going to keep coming back to those reference points. I think they each add something. So how do we understand, I think, what's being pointed to? With all the possible confusion, I think there's something that maybe I can talk about more simply that's being pointed to by this teaching of not-self, which can sometimes get obfuscated and used obfuscated in a long time. <laughs> that can get obfuscated by, um, by the teachings, even, or by all the language, or by the conceptual confusion, or by all these issues. I think what's being pointed to could be expressed simply. It's that we have both um, a sen senses of self which can um, be limiting at times. And that there may be a sense of self which permits certain experiences to happen, but we, we also can see that there can be a limited sense of self. And the uh, other side of that is that there also can be an expansive sense of self, a greater, a greater sense of self. <coughs> And one of the things I didn't mention, maybe I want to bring in here, when I was thinking about the social construction of self, I was, I was also reflecting some about what are the needs of our times. We may say that that individualist self, that's self-preoccupied, that's concerned about my desires, my wants, you know, my this or that, maybe had a certain historical basis at a certain time, but given the kind of challenges of our world, it's really not very functional right now. We need, in a sense, to move to a, a, a wider and bigger sense of self that feels more connected maybe with the earth, more uh, interdependent. You know, we need much more, maybe instead of a more independent self, we need a more in interdependent self. So there's a way in which 
I think that the very challenges of our time may be calling forth a different sense of self. You know, that is actually needed to face the challenges of, very immense challenges of, you know, whether it's economic challenges or ecological challenges, global uh, climate disruption, or, uh, or even the issues of diversity, of racism, of so forth, that we may need, we may be called to a bigger and wider sense of self. There's a, there's a passage I wanted to read about that from Joanna Macy, often sw- speaks very eloquently about that. Let me see where this is. This is from, this is from an essay of hers called The Greening of the Self, right at the end. We know that we are not limited by the accident of our birth or the timing of it, and we recognize the truth that we have always been around this wider sense of self. We can re-inhabit time in our own, our own story as a species. We were present there back in the fireball and the rains that streamed down on the still molten planet and in the primordial seas. We remember that in our mother's womb where we wear vestigial gills and tails and fins for hands. We remember that. That information is in us and there is a deep, deep kinship in us beneath the outer layers of our neocortex or what we learned in school. There is a deep wisdom, a bondedness with creation and an ingenuity far beyond what we think we have. And when we expand our notions of what we are to include in this story, we will have a wonderful time and we will survive. Mm. So it's that pointing to that the sense of self maybe also, uh, that this inquiry is not just about ourselves, so to speak, but it's about that larger larger community. So I think what's being pointed to in this teaching, again, something simple, that there are very limit, limited ways that we construct ourselves, which are often connected with suffering and with difficulty. It could be connected with past suffering as with uh, past wounds. It can be connected with places that we get stuck, maybe in our relationships. And we're asked really to see where is there a thick sense of self? Is that a limited sense of self? What is, what is the self? And there's, there's a powerful passage from the Zen teacher Dogen, some of you may know this, very famous statement. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. So it points to a way that we study the self and we may study the way the self appears. We study the way we have self-image or self-consciousness or when do I feel particularly reactive or when is there something happening in me? And we all have this and we can study this in meditation, we can study this in daily life. We study ourselves, we study when the self appears. When do I want my view to prevail? When do I get really attached to my view? What I want to happen? My agenda? When am I really reactive around something in my body? When do I have a strong sense of self? What I'm going to invite us to do is actually to study that in the next week. In your meditation, you might take the last half of your meditation, and just be, once you have some subtleness, look for a sense of self. When does the sense of self appear? And again, we're not seeing it as the enemy. It's really, we just want to see what's there. When do, we, when do I have a sense of, why did that person say that? And we have a sense of self-righteousness, or a sense of self-image. When, in your daily lives, do you feel self-conscious? Like, oh, those people are looking at me. Or I don't feel comfortable here. Again, we're not trying to, at the moment, change it. We're just trying to see what's there. How does a sense of self appear in your experience? Is it sometimes connected with uh, limitations or with suffering? Is it sometimes helpful? What's there? Just see what's there. How does it appear in ordinary experience? And so, part of the teaching about not-self, I think, is to look to 
experience and see when self appears. And I think it's also pointing to the fact that we have experiences in which we go beyond self-image and self-consciousness, in which we feel connected, in which there might not be any sense of self. And, I, and one of the ways that I find we can really access this teaching of not-self, or the teaching of the great self, or the teaching of self with a capital S, is looking at our experiences when we are not self-conscious, when we are, uh, don't have a self-image, when we feel really connected. And I think there are all sorts of ordinary experiences in which this happens, right? We can be in the non-human world, in the forest or in the mountains, have no sense of self and just feel connected. We can be doing whatever, gardening or dancing or be meditating. And sometimes that sense of self drops away or we can be with people we're entirely comfortable with and we don't need to have any front, any protection, any self-image. And sometimes with people we're close to, the sense of self drops away. One of the examples of that that I like a lot is uh, in, uh, in art. People who are artists often report these kind of experiences of being so immersed in the activity that the sense of self drops away. We're almost like channeling something in the, the artwork or in uh, music. Um, I once wrote a poem that was um, inspired by my mom, who happens to be here this morning. I won't, I won't stare at her. I want her to get self-conscious. <laughs> but I, won't, I once wrote a short, short poem about that, that sense of going beyond self and music, because I think it's the essence of great music. And this is what she said. We were talking about meditation practice and concentration practice. I wrote this little short poem. My mother Bernice is a musician. She says that music is her concentration practice. In giving a concert, if there's a sense of self or of, or of how one's doing, it's not good, she says. Quote, you have to let yourself be taken over by the music. May we all be taken over by the music. Mm-hmm. So there's that sense that there are both limits of self, but there's also something larger. There's a sense that we can access often. I think this is really what meditation is accessing in talking about not-self, in which we go into something larger. The ordinary sense of self drops away. We can cultivate this in all sorts of ways, in meditation, in very ordinary experience when we let ourselves be immersed. You know, I, I have a friend, Andy Cooper, who wrote a book called, the, uh, called Playing in the Zone, which was about sports. These sorts of things happen in sports all the time. They have words for it, like in, in uh, I think it might have, might have come from basketball, but maybe many sports, it's called playing in the zone or being in the zone. When one's in the zone, there's no sense of self. You know, and there are amazing quotations of people who are in that place where there is no sense of self, full immersion in the activity, and sometimes remarkable things happen. They go to a sense of self where they report being telepathic. You know, basketball players say, I knew what was going to happen. I knew my teammates. We were almost as one organism. Which, of course, brain science tells us that our limbic systems are connected. Right? So it's not actually so remarkable in that sense that we actually can know each other's emotions and thoughts. You know, that we, we actually have that capacity in certain ways. And so I think what's being pointed to I deliberately tried to engender a little bit of confusion with all the conceptual stuff, but when you get down to it, it actually may be simple, right? It's actually that we have, we get stuck or coagulated around sense of self, often from the past, that we can study and gradually deconstruct, transform. Now, on the other hand, we can open up to, we might say, a wider sense of self, an expansive sense of self, in which the usual sense of self-image, self-consciousness, is not there. We can cultivate that in various ways. So the second practice I want to invite for the next week, the first practice is studying the self 
where it appears both in meditation and ordinary life. You're in ordinary life, you're going down the street, and suddenly a strong sense of self appears. Again, not to just get rid of it, it could be that we don't, I don't feel safe, and I'm wanting to uh, protect myself, so I'm in a strong sense of self. Study all that. Study when self appears. And then, secondly, when do you feel that you're beyond the usual sense of self? in an experience, even if it's brief. You know, maybe uh, when you're, again, immersed in an activity. Immersed in the natural world. Really, really connected with someone very, very close to you. And, and being beyond the usual sense of self doesn't mean that we're stopping to talk and stopping to think. It doesn't mean that at all. That we can have thinking, activity, all sorts of things, but maybe not with the usual sense of self. So I want to invite us to study the self, study where it gets thick, where it gets strong, on the one hand, and then study where we seem to go beyond the usual sense of self, and even cultivate that to some extent. When you're in an activity, really immerse yourself into it. Washing the dishes. Can you have a not-self experience of washing the dishes? brushing your teeth. So let me end with a poem which in some ways goes back to that um, possible confusion. Remember the confusion. The confusion, you know, keep asking yourself. You know, in, in some traditions, as you know, people sit there saying, who am I? Who am I? You know, can do this for hours or weeks on end. Who am I? And um, it's called inquiry, and it, it, it actually is meant to go beyond the usual thoughts of things. It's done. You can do that sometimes. Just have contact with that not knowing quality. So this is how I'll end by invoking that some. This is from uh, Rumi, again from many, many centuries ago. This is a poem called The Tavern. All day I think about it, and then at night I say it. Where did I come from? What am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I fly off. But who is it now who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. Let's sit for a moment and let whatever reflections are there be present. some time if there are any questions or reflections uh, or if we can leave this going. Yeah. Um, are there any questions or reflections? Um, please. I was thinking about the God particle idea yeah. and how you would work that into your thoughts about this. The question is, how did it work? <laughs> My thoughts about this recently discovered so-called God particle in physics, how I would connect that with a sense of self, you know? 
Uh, I've been a little busy since the God part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't consider myself well informed, but how would you answer it? For me, it just kind of, oh, I just don't even have the vocabulary. It just further helped me get that sense of there's nobody home here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know how else to say it ex except that in this incarnation there is. But yeah. <coughs> yeah. Uh, I think a lot of uh, science is quite interesting in pointing to some similar insights as we find in a teaching like Not-Self. A lot of people have explored that, and maybe from the physics as well. But what it points to is, uh, if I remember, the, the God particle is about the mystery of how things are unified. Right? And matter. Yeah, and how matter coheres. And there's also a mystery of how we have individuality. Now, having individuality is not the same thing as exactly as uh, being a self. They're little different levels. And I don't think there's any denial that there's individuality. But I think the question is, is this the last word? You know, or is, is, uh, um, in ancient times uh, in the West, uh, the old philosophers would talk about the mystery of oneness and the many. How do we have both oneness and the many at the same time? And when we focus exclusively on the self, as we often do, again, culturally we do this a lot, we tend to go on one side, and we forget the unity, we forget the connection. And some of what we're being invited to do is to see those aspects of something greater than self, or greater than the usual self. And how does that come in? And maybe some of the uh, scientific findings can... Um, can inspire us, because we can know that on one level there is just this vast world of particles and of however we talk about it, energetic experiences. And, and one can have that experience also in meditation. Uh, when the mind gets very, very quiet, there can be a sense of uh, there is a local consciousness here, and there is a body, but the usual boundaries are much less firm than usual. And there's much more of a sense of continuity and being part of a larger whole, even though there is, yes, there is individual location here. And in many of the teachings, the key is actually to touch our awareness, that our awareness is this mysterious quality. And in many of the traditions, many of the teachings of the Buddha, and this is especially brought out in later traditions, to go deeply into awareness and to see that the deepest aspect of awareness is actually beyond the limited self. That we can have an awareness which is quite vast and beyond the self. And that that can be accessed and experienced and increasingly brought into ordinary experience. And this is, I think, what our, you know, the greatest teachers have some of that in their, in their being. Yeah, Robin, please. It's my understanding that part of Buddhist psychology and the idea of delusion. Yeah. I didn't hear you mention delusion at all when you were talking about the concept of self. So yeah. What, what role does delusion so, play in all So the question is, what, what role does delusion play in uh, a sense of self? Um, quite a bit. <laughs> I, did, I did quote from a coloring I used the word, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. But I didn't, I didn't bring it out, as you say. It was, it was there... Um, I think, I think the implicit sense is that we take, uh, there's some delusion when we take the self to be much more real and much more fixed than it really is. Or we take it to be when we have the sense of self, as in the way I was portraying sort of the Western construction of the individualist self, where my core reality is my own subjectivity. 
that there's a certain element of delusion there. And um, I think what it also can be is an invitation to our own practice. When I see my sense of self, I can ask, uh, is there some confusion there? Is there some delusion? So traditionally, the, uh, the aspects of the sense of self that were seen to be delusive would have to do with a sense of the self as permanent, for example. That we often have a kind of lived sense. We know intellectually that everyone dies, but if you actually would go inside for each of us, we would somehow say that I am the one exception to that. That's delusion. Right? Or So there's some, some way that awareness of mortality and of impermanence hasn't really isn't there. And of course, this is probably for uh, each of us, it's more or less, right? It's more or less, but there can be a sense that the self is permanent. We can also have a sense that the self is uh, independent. You know, that I, and again, this is very close to much of the mythology of this culture of the so-called self-made man. And it's, it's right there in political discourse. Do you remember um, there was a big hubbub when the candidate for Senate from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, said that actually we are hugely interdependent and that everyone kind of, that we have uh, kind of the mythology that we all pick ourselves up from our own bootstraps. But he said, well, you know, actually corporations get all sorts of benefits. Everyone is, everyone is helped. There's, a, there's independence and uh, people were very bothered by that. They thought, you know, so it, it's right in, you know, there's a lot of the sense of the self as independent. I did everything myself, you know, or I am actually uh, separate. So those would be aspects of delusion in the traditional teachings. That there's a sense of uh, self as permanence. And this was actually, I think, the way the kind of self the Buddha was criticizing was very much the model of the um, Hindu Atma or Atta, which was that of independent and permanent. And that's, that, would be, that would be aspects of uh, delusion, if one would, would think that. And so the, um, the practice would be to see where do I have something like that, and really to study that. So those, I think those are the primary aspects of it. So, uh, and and uh, probably if we look individually, we can find a lot of aspects of delusion. You know, like that example the example of the ten-year-old who um, you know, maybe feels abandoned. Often in that kind of experience, often in our psychological development, the ten-year-old thinks, I was responsible for my parents' divorce. And there can be a strong sense of guilt, which forms a very strong sense of self. That is a kind of delusion there. That's there for a lot of our sort of psychopathologies or psychological problems, we will probably find delusion there to some extent. Yeah. Thanks for the questions, a good one. Anything else before we, before we finish? a deep topic, isn't it? How many of you would would like to look at at self in the next week? Like to explore this in your meditation and in your daily experience and are willing to report back what you find? It can be a little embarrassing. You can report back uh, uh, what what my self-talk is. <laughs> Gil Fransdell has the word. He says, we engage in the process of selfing <laughs> at certain times. We form a self, and then the self <coughs> is there. So again, the invitation then is to do two kinds of practices. One is seeing where the self appears. You can see that in meditation. Uh, it's, again, it's not something... There's not some huge thing where the self appears with neon lights and says, behold, the self has arrived. <laughs> it's more that the self is there when we have a self-image, we have a view, we find ourselves in our meditation arguing a particular point and we feel some tightness. A lot of the 
sense of self that we're going to be pointing to as problematic, and this is connected with the Buddhist psychology, is where there's some grasping. Where there's some grasping or what we call reactivity. Some grasping after a sense of self or some pushing away. That's where we're going to find it uh, limited and problematic. To have simply an accurate sense of who one is without grasping or aversion is not necessarily a problem. Where there's grasping or aversion, that can be problematic and connect to the suffering. So that's kind of the key. But we want to see, where do I grasp after a sense of self? And we all do it. It's not nothing to be embarrassed about. Um, it could be all sorts of things. I can grasp after myself as a this or that role, right? I'm a spirit rock teacher. <laughs> right? Or I'm a meditator. Yeah. Do you go to Spirit Rock, you know, at parties mm-hmm. when you're introducing yourself? Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go to Spirit Rock? Oh yes, I go to the Wednesday group, Ooh. it's so cool. <laughs> you know? So it's just in these ordinary experiences that we see we see self revealed. Particularly look for where there's some sense of grasping or need or maybe a wound and look there. And and maybe take notes. Look for what you find. And then the second aspect is seeing when does it feel like you go into a more expansive sense of self. Again, it could be, I don't know, with a, uh, a child maybe. You're playing with a child. It could, be, yeah. it could be very expansive, no sense of self, just the delight, right? Something like that. Or art, or music, or listening to music, or being by the ocean. Or, again, being with someone very uh, close to you. Or maybe in meditation sometimes it just feels like there's no self, you're just experiencing the breath. It's sometimes like that too. So in meditation, notice those two things, take some notes also, and report back. And that's what we'll continue. And I think the main theme I'm going to go in more detail next time is on the nature of the self. I'll go into a lot more depth. I'll talk about the traditional Buddhist teaching about self and not self. And I'll also bring in some other, uh, some <coughs> other perspectives to try to say, what are the forms that the self appears in? That'll be my focus next time, and I'll continue to give some practices that we can uh, take home. Yeah. Are you going to talk about uh, self and e- ego? Is ego going to get in? Because I think that in my mind, the self yeah. is divided when it's the dark side of the self, I call it ego. Yeah. And when it's the positive one, I call it self. So yeah. that's the play. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll bring, I'll bring in that sense of uh, the different ways we use the word ego. You know, yeah, and... Uh, Good, I'll, I'll bring that in, and we can, you know, the, the language doesn't matter so much uh, as long as we're clear about it. Yeah. And people use very different words. Some people use ego negatively, as I mentioned, some positively. But yeah, I'll bring in that language, and again, I'll leave uh, time so we can talk together. But I'm particularly interested in how we explore this. Because the, you know, the whole idea of the teaching, I think, is that we see our more limited sense of self, maybe what you call ego, We see that, we work with it, and over time, we transform that more limited sense of self and move into this more expansive sense of self. That's, that is my unpacking of what not self means. Yeah. Yeah, I was just in case you want us to do a more experiential kind of exploration rather than reading. That would be, that's my suggestion for next time. I mean, of course you can read or listen to other talks, but... Um, minimally, I'd really like you to do the experiential work. I want to ground everything we do in that kind of practice. Because like I said, I think even though it's confusing conceptually at times, I think when we actually point to it, it actually can be simpler than it maybe first appeared. And you know, having a core teaching called not-self is not, you know, if they had had focus groups for this culture, it probably would have come up with a different name if I can say it that way. Uh, Because it's not the most obvious term, right? But I think we can talk about it in simpler ways. Um, And we'll try to unpack that and try to both, but also stay true to the um, original teachings. So yeah, I am inviting us really to keep looking. It doesn't involve necessarily more time. It just involves keeping that focus in, in, in your experience. And if you can, cultivate some of those more expansive senses of self. You know, so homework is consider going to the ocean this weekend.
<laughs> or something. Do one, do something for five or ten minutes or more every day. That's expensive. That'd be a way of working with this as well. So that's that's a wonderful invitation. I'll, I'll have to do it myself. <laughs> so again, we remember at the end that we do this practice uh, both for ourselves and for others use that language, <laughs> and that as we develop into, uh, as it were, greater selves, we actually become increasingly of benefit to others and help them come towards that greater self. So we're pointing towards this community increasingly of uh, increasingly free, increasingly great selves that are also not selves. <laughs> and may this all be a benefit for, for all of us. <laughs> <laughs>